my name is Patricia King and today I have an exciting message for you to hear. Stop! What are you thinking? We can't make it look like Patricia King is endorsing fighting. <clears throat> Hi folks, uh, Chris Rosebeer here. Just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and your financial contributions to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you as well as to the world. And unfortunately, we don't have the the major cash resources that Patricia King does, but we have you, our listener audience, to help uh, support us financially so that we can keep bringing this radio program to you into the world. If you don't already support Fighting for the Faith financially, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And there are perks to being a crew member. Just keep listening to the program to find out what the latest perk is. And, of course, if you would like to make a one-time contribution, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. We loved making it. We hope you enjoyed listening to it. Here we go. It's time... Another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Wednesday, November 16th, 2011. Mm-mm. Okay, we're doing our light edition today, and um, continuing with Dr. Rosenblatt's lectures on uh, the book of Galatians, and Luther's commentary thereof. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. Now, one of the things we do on a week-to-week basis is I pick one day, and I've been picking it in the middle because it just works out easier with all the other stuff that I've been working on. Uh, to uh, have a light edition. That means that we're going to deal with a singular topic, and I usually turn the microphone over to somebody who knows what they're talking about. And uh, we've been kind of switching back and forth between Dr. Rod Rosenblatt and Dr. Adam Francisco. This week we're going to be listening to two lectures by Dr. Rosenblatt on Luther's commentary on the book of Galatians. Now you're wondering, why two? Answer, because the first lecture is only 30 minutes long, <laughs> and just a little just a little north of 30 minutes. So what we're going to do is we're going to, uh, after the first lecture, we're going to take a break, pay some bills, come back, and then listen to lecture number two, which was is almost an hour long. Fantastic, fantastic stuff. So anyway, I, I hope you enjoy it. Here is Dr. Rod Rosenblatt. All right. If uh, we could make use of the time we've got. I very naively imagined we'd do the last half of chapter two this morning. That's right out now, right out. Um, We will cover at least uh, Paul's uh, face-to-face confrontation with Peter, and that might be it for the day because I have just a few minutes before 11 o'clock now. Uh, Again, a reminder, 
Um, you're welcome to this. It's White Horse Inn Presents, The Promise of the Gospel in the Book of Galatians. This was sent out free. We gave away hundreds of them in Minneapolis to John Piper Desiring God fans. Um, so if you want it, you're welcome to just take it, put it on a thumb drive, uh, make whatever use of it you want. It's a freebie. Then again, uh, the caveat, what we're doing in here is really, really low-level stuff. That is, we're treating uh, Luther's greater commentary on Galatians uh, as a great book. So uh, the name of the game here is, what did Luther have to say about this book? And that's uh, low-level, but worthy of our attention. Uh, some of you have heard me say, I think this is the greatest book he ever wrote, other than the small catechism, not Bondage of the Will. He disagreed with me, and he gets to trump my ace. I still think it, though. All right, starting at 11, in chapter 2. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. Luther, this is a marvelous account. Uh, one that Jerome didn't get. Critics, he said, often look at Peter's high prestige, his high social position, and forget the majesty of the doctrine. Okay? Paul ignores the prestige of Peter in order to keep the doctrine pure, undefiled. Says Luther, this is not trivial. It involves the principal doctrine of Christianity. When justification is threatened, we too must not be afraid, must stand up against Peter, an angel from heaven, even the whole world. Um, he contrasts honor the magistrate, show respect for Peter, for parents, for the emperor, but in the cause of the doctrine of justification, we act properly to refuse to yield to them. Um, he adds, uh, the, the fact that great saints sin should be a great comfort to us, and he digresses on that. Uh, I think we talked a little bit about that last time. Peter did not err doctrinally, but he sinned gravely. D.H. Lawrence in Women in Love said, the sanity is in the balls. It was by Peter's cowardly actions that he denied the gospel. He was eating freely with Gentile Christians, eating with Jewish Christians, until the party from St. Louis, I mean uh, <laughs> Jerusalem, arrived. And he withdrew from eating with the Gentiles when the guys showed up from Jerusalem. Says Paul, he was not walking in accord with the truth of the gospel. Did he believe the truth? Yeah, he did. But let there be a little threat from Mother Church, and he cowered. Uh, he has a history of this. What was it? A, a young teenager who outside the gates there one night said, you have a Galilean accent. You, are you one of his? And three times Peter says, never heard of him. So he's got a history with this. 
So Paul defended Christ's teaching of justification by grace alone through faith alone and confronted Peter face to face for being a coward. Okay, 12. For before certain men came from James, he ate with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Peter had joined the Gentiles in not eating kosher as he ate with the Gentiles. When the Jews arrived, Peter ceased to eat with those Gentiles. He had constantly preached that obedience to the law is not necessary for justification of the sinner. 13. And with him, the rest of the Jews acted insincerely so that even Barnabas was carried away by their insincerity. So he accuses Peter of dissimulation, weakness, hypocrisy, insincerity, not acting in accord with the gospel. The actions of Peter sent a strong message, namely that obedience to the law really is necessary for justification. He injected a scruple into the consciences of the faithful. Luther, what the people would conclude, quote, Peter abstains from foods prohibited by the law. Therefore, whoever eats foods prohibited by the law sins and transgresses the law. But whoever abstains is righteous and keeps the law. Paul, the truth of the gospel was here endangered. Would have been a different matter if Peter just said, we can do this out of charity. That wouldn't have been a danger. But if understood that it's necessary in order to be justified, it amounts to denying Christ. So Paul's call is very simply in a confrontation, back to the gospel. Your actions are denying it. Back to the gospel. Luther, I'm making such a point of all this to keep anyone from supposing that the doctrine of faith is an easy matter. It's easily obscured and easily lost. Verse 14, but when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, only Paul sees this. He accuses them, Peter and Barnabas and the other Jews, of failing to walk according to the truth of the gospel, swerving. They were unwittingly again establishing the law. He said that amounts to the overthrow of the gospel. Luther, Peter, bears it patiently, undoubtedly accepted it with gratitude. Paul told told Peter that he preached the gospel, but he did not walk uprightly according to it. In other words, his words were right on, but his action seemed again to bring the law back in. Then he has a digression now in society. The obedience to the law must be required. Nothing must be known about the gospel when you're in court. But when it has to do with theology and how a sinner is saved, nothing of it. I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? He rebuked Peter for abstaining from meat when he was around the Jews, but when he was with the Gentiles, he ate meat. Um, are, you're a Jew, but like the Gentiles, you do not abstain from foods forbidden by the law. In this you do right. When Peter observes the law, as if conscience requires it, 
Then his actions compelled the Gentiles to live like Jews. They figured they had to live the law by necessity or in order to be saved. Um, It's not a charge of ignorance. Uh, Paul acknowledges that Peter was preaching the pure truth. He acknowledges uh, that Peter knew he was free to eat any food. It's fine to live like a Jew. It's a matter of indifference. Just so long as it doesn't creep into column A, how the sinner is justified. So it's his behavior that offend, offended against the truth of the gospel. Causes the Gentiles to think faith is not enough. Law needs to be added to Christ. Says Paul, that's a denial of Christ. Okay? And Peter's behavior confused the distinction between law and gospel. Persuaded the believing Jews that they had, that in order to be justified, uh, the gospel wasn't enough. So he confronts Peter, not just to correct Peter, but to establish a plain distinction between law and gospel. Verse 15, we ourselves who are Jews by birth are not Gentiles and not Gentile sinners. Says Paul, we Jews bring the law along with us from birth, not by choice as the Gentiles. But none of this makes us righteous in the sight of God. We're circumcised, but we're not justified by circumcision. So, and then Luther digresses on the danger of ceremonies. Uh, They're more important sometimes than we think. And then Paul starts setting faith in Christ against what the false apostles were teaching, against anything, he sets himself against anything that opposes faith in Christ as enough. 16, yet who know that a man is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ. Uh, Remember I said one of the things we're going to find in this book is it has only one point, and it's going to go at it from 360 degrees of the compass, but you have the relief, oh yeah, it's only one point. This book is easily understood because it only has one point. Not the law! Christ's cross and blood. Uh So, in the broadest possible emphatic sense, works of law are out with regard to column A. In fact, works of law is understood to mean anything opposed to grace in Christ. Um, And he said, having to answer the scholastics, we're not differentiating here between the Decalogue and ceremonial law. If you've ever had a deep conversation with a well-trained Roman Catholic, they're going to take that business. Paul and Luther, no, the entire law. Uh, Don't get into that one. Uh, Were you to do every work of the law according to the commandment, you'd still not be justified in the sight of God. The law is still holy, righteous, and good. Nevertheless, a man is not justified in the sight of God through them. Uh, the entire law, Um, and Luther brings up works of law can be performed before justification. He brings up pagans who performed works of the law without an Old Testament, accomplished really great things, but it didn't justify before God. So Luther condemns on a digression the pernicious opinions of the papists again, the so-called merit of congruity and the merit of condignity God isn't indebted to anyone. He is never painted into a corner. He is never obliged by right to grant anybody eternal life. 
See, the Roman system, finally he has to pay you off because you've done what you were supposed to do by obeying all these additions that the Pope authored, and you've got him painted into a corner. He's obliged to save you. Luther will have none of it. He's never obliged. He said the papists not only obscure the gospel, they remove it. They've buried Christ completely. If I have the power to please God by the tiniest of works, prior to grace or after grace, what need have I for the grace of God? Christ has become useless to me. Popes, bishops, theologians, monks, the whole gang. We totally deny the merit of congruity and the merit of condignity, all of it. Uh, God has never given anyone grace and eternal life for the merit of congruity or the merit of condignity. These are empty fictions and dreams of idle men, and yet the papacy is founded on them. He tells what the monk imagines of himself when he comes into the monastery, what he imagines of himself as compared with others, that he was accomplishing works of supererogation beyond perfection that were banked in the treasury of the church and us slobs could make uh, withdrawals on those. Uh, Luther will have none of it. First, Luther contrasts what he calls the true meaning of Christianity. The first step, man must be taught by the law to know himself and recognize his own unrighteousness. That is that he's a sinner. The law shows him he's a sinner one for whom it's impossible to form any good work. It's his main function to drive men away from worthiness. It's to drive us to true repentance, which is fear of God's judgment, to recognize we cannot save ourselves, that all are sinful, including me, and it's to drive us to Christ out of that despair. The second step, frightened, humbled sinners begin to look for help, for a savior. In the gospel, we hear that God sent his son into the world that we might live through him. We hear that he was crucified for us, died for us, bore our sins in his body, 1 Peter 2. We hear that he, that he has delivered us from sin and its consequences without any merit in us, Romans 4 or 5. God grants this freely for Christ's sake. Now, again, that's a very pregnant phrase in the New Testament. It's, the only place we hear it is from a mechanic, you know, underneath our car when he bangs his knuckle. Uh, but it's actually a very, very pregnant phrase. He forgives our sins for Christ's sake. Okay? To deny this and to be self-righteous and unwilling to accept the pure gift To want to earn it by our works is to rob God of his his deity, rob God of his glory. Thus, in summary, says Luther, our theology about Christian righteousness. It's in opposition to the monstrosities of the sophists about the merit of congruity and the merit of condignity. Uh, He does an analysis of the sophists' claims for our ability to earn justification and shows how far they have strayed from what scripture says. Um, They have Christ as the new lawgiver, the new Moses. But says Luther, the scripture presents him rather as the propitiator and the savior of sinners. 
These three things, says Luther, are joined together, faith, Christ, and the imputation. Faith takes hold of Christ. Whoever has faith in him captures him. God accounts as if righteous. And the imputation is necessary. We're not now purely righteous. We still have sin deep, deep and active in us in our flesh during this life. But they're covered. They're not necessarily gone, but they're covered. We know that our sin is covered. <clears throat> God does not want to hold uh, us accountable for them. In fact, he's forgotten them. Doesn't mean there's no sin left in us. It's there and it's strong. But it is hidden in the sight of God because Christ the mediator stands between us and him. Okay, after we have taught faith in Christ in this way, then we teach good works and only then that we should go and love God and neighbor. These are truly good works. They flow after faith in Christ. We do them willingly in a way that we never would have earlier. They enable the Christian to bear the cross and suffering. So we should define a true Christian as, quote, someone to whom God imputeth not his sin through faith in Christ. No sin imputed to you or reckoned to your account or there for judging on the last day. It's gone because it was covered uh, we still are sinners, but it's covered. This doctrine, says Luther, brings firm consolation to troubled consciences. It's not in vain that we constantly teach the forgiveness of sins for the sake of Christ and the imputing of righteousness, the righteousness of Christ to us freely who have no merits at all, only sin. Luther said, when you're dealing with this issue, it is no time for the law. Don't even speak of the law. Christian properly defined is free from all laws, is subject to nothing. Um, now here, of course, he's talking not about parking tickets. He's talking about justification before God. Huh? You get a parking ticket, you got to go pay, pay for it. When the law accuses and sin troubles us, we look to Christ, the victor over the law, sin, death, the devil. Christ prevents these from ever harming us. Christians are constituted as judges over all kinds of doctrine, not just the Turk with his Quran, but the Pope as well. And they're without Christ and without justification. Luther had nothing personally against Leo X. He wrote some just suffocatingly nice words in the preface, but he absolutely condemned the doctrine he represented. He thought it was a false map to heaven, out of hell itself. Right? So false teachers always try to make men, make men forgive their own sins through works, but only Christ can forgive sins. So the basis of my pronouncing sentence against the Pope is his teaching of salvation by merit. In the matter of justification, we must separate all law and works from the promise of the gospel, from faith in Christ. Justification can only be found in Christ, and you'll only get it if you take it for free. Hmm? Add something of your whatever, your virtue, your not as bad as the guy next door, your whatever, and you avoid it. Now, is this easy? No! Luther said this is hard as all get out. 
He said to the, to the polemicists from Rome, you think faith is easy? To bet everything, all the blue chips on something completely non-intuitive that the righteousness of somebody else will cover me and the righteousness of somebody else is sufficient and the righteousness of somebody else has to replace my living according to God's law. You think that's easy? Are you kidding? Well, Rome's definition of faith, when you get that, you understand, oh, I can see why there's a problem. What's Rome's definition of faith? I believe whatever the church teaches. Really. That's their definition definition of faith. I believe whatever the church teaches. So you can see how this would be a collision. Okay? Denounces the papacy for wrongly teaching salvation by works. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, not by the works of the law. Luther, justified by faith in Christ solely, not adding anything, and particular works of law. And this was aimed at the Pope as well. We conclude with Paul, by faith alone, not by faith formed by love, are we justified. Simple, uneducated, non-sophisticated, dying, saying, all I've got is Jesus and his blood. All I've got is a cross. Other than that, I'm bankrupt. Luther would say, there's a true theologian. There's a true theologian. But, says somebody in the back of the room again, the law is good and righteous and holy. Luther, very well. But when we're involved in a discussion of justification, there's no room for talking about the law. The question is, who's Christ? And what did he do? And what blessing does he bring us? And for those who aren't able to distinguish, Luther says, you know, Christ is not the law. Christ is not my work. Christ is not my love for others. Christ is not my chastity. Christ is not my obedience. Christ is not my poverty. Those were the vows that monks... No, he's the mediator, the savior of sinners, uses the analogy of the bridegroom and the bride. So we must learn to distinguish all laws, even those from God, and all works from faith in Christ, if we were to define Christianity accurately. He's the law, not the law, but the lamb. He's grasped by simple faith alone and not by loving our neighbors. Christ and his blood, that's all. Don't add nothing. He said, I am perfectly willing to be, have myself called a sola fideist, which was a spit word from Rome. You are a sola fideist, a soli graceist. Luther says, fine. In order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Here again, he's speaking of the entire law, all kinds of it, every kind of it. Um, does not mean that the law is evil. It means it can't contribute anything to our justification. Here, we are obliged to do nothing at all. The only necessary thing is we accept the treasure that is Christ. Even though we feel completely engulfed by our sin, Luther said, doesn't matter. Just trust Christ and put a wooden stake through that vampire heart of my goodness. 
or that somehow I'm better than Charlie down the street. That's what's got to die. Then he shifts to speaking to the Galatians. Um, because by works of the law shall no one be justified. When he uses the phrase, not all flesh, it doesn't really mean, as the sophist said, crass sins, those Paul calls by name. Rather, it means what Christ meant, the entire nature of the human being with his reason and with all his powers, man at his best. You know, what your humanist neighbors wax eloquent about. Heard some idiocy again on television uh, the other night about it's impossible to stifle the spirit of man. And it was being used with regard to those idiots marching in the streets against the banksters. And I thought, holy smokes. Um, This lady didn't know she was denying anything. Um, And it's not her fault she's an idiot. Huh? It's not. Not her fault. But what Paul is saying here is you take man at his best, the wisest, Socrates, the best lawyers, the one pastor, one's pastor was referring to in the pulpit this morning. And says Paul, and Luther echoes, that is not justified by works. For Paul, flesh means the highest righteousness, the highest wisdom, the highest worship, the highest religion, the highest understanding, the highest will of which the world is capable. Monks, priests, philosophers, theologians, Turks, Jews, you name it. No matter how wise, no matter how righteous, they're not justified. Now, you... You do this in conversation, and I swear to you, one of the most common retorts you'll get is, well, that can't be right. That's too simple. Really? You got that much of a hold on the mind of God, huh? That can't be right. That's too simple. Hmm. How has the church endured amid such darkness, says Luther? Well... God called some by the text of the gospel being read, pulpit or so forth, by baptism. Uh, They found them the monks, uh, the ordained as holy, um, found in themselves no good works or merits to pit against God's wrath and judgment. And somehow they found their way to taking refuge in the suffering of Christ. Somehow. Some of them anyway. Uh, and in that very simplicity, we're saved. Um, then he says the papacy has been turned over to a reprobate mind because of its denial of Christ and his saving work. Wherever God is honored, he's honored in the Son. Whoever believes that the Son is our mediator and Savior honors the Father. God in turn honors him. Not because of something in him, but because of what he's grasped. The son given for him for righteousness sake. The universal principle here in Paul, by works of the law shall no one be justified. Therefore, faith alone justifies. There's the basic point again. And then Paul goes on to confirm it with arguments. How long are we scheduled to meet? It's 25 after. Another five minutes. I don't know when the class ends. 
Okay, we got five minutes. Okay, let me throw it open for questions then. We'll pick up at verse 17 uh, and away with my dreams that I could have done the end of chapter 2 today. That's gone. <laughs> Sorry. It's the single point he's making here. You're getting it again and again and again and again and again and again and again in a different form. You add works in column A and you've cut yourself out of benefits of Christ. Leave it out of there. Take it for free or you don't get it at all. And Luther said, this is tough. Day by day by day by day not to try and sneak something in there. Tough fight. Tough fight. Never ends. Alice? Rod, um, there's a, you talked about Peter's behavior confusing um, not eating meat, Paul not eating meat with the Gentiles, not with the Jews, but with the Gentiles. Yeah. Meat. And I think of the people who will not drink with uh, Christians who believe that it's wrong yes. and will in fact do it with churches that allow it. And the reason that's given to me is... Um, we don't want our brother to stumble. Yeah. The How, stumbling, there seems to be a parallel here. Yeah. Um, I, I think somebody is being generous in not employing their freedom. Paul's going to say more about this if we get to chapters 5 and 6. I think somebody is doing something that really is praiseworthy if they're amongst the weaker brothers but the goal is that the weaker brother not allowed to live his whole life in weakness. The weaker brother is the one who is scandalized that, so, that liquor ever touches a Christian's lips. And he's to be catechized out of that. He may never take a drink himself, but he's got to be catechized out of being a weaker brother who believes heaven and earth turn on such things because they don't. The weaker brother is the one who's a legalist in his the kind of guy, as Paul said earlier, who sneaks in to spy us out in our freedom. He doesn't see himself that way. He sees himself as a monitor of morality within Christianity. But the weaker brother in Christianity is the one who needs desperately some theological training about Christ and his cross and the completeness of it. Uh, Calvin said one time, all right, okay, but... If he's going to use that weakness to tyrannize the congregation, you go buy booze even if you hate it. <laughs> then it's a matter of principle to take a drink. <laughs> now, if Calvin can see that, <laughs> all right, then uh, next time maybe we'll have a, the full time. But today I, uh, I think it's time to spot, stop because the clock says so. Thanks for your attendance, and we'll pick it up here next time. Okay, that was lecture number one. Lecture number two coming up after the break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. If you want advice on how to have your best life now, you're in the wrong place. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. 
Pirate Christian Radio Theatre presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... study with my eight-week program, you will learn a self-feeder system that I developed over two seasons of preaching in the Octagon. It's called Rexquando. I need a volunteer to come up here and show that they trust me. I'm here. Okay, you'll do. Come up here. Bow to your pastor. Bow to your pastor! Okay, now I'm gonna give you one chance. One chance, people. Turn around. Turn around. All right. Now fall back and I'll catch you. Ow. That was pretty good. Now, listen, everybody. The reason why he fell was because he didn't have enough faith. Go sit down. Okay, when I fall, I fall in slow motion every time. Now, in addition to what you just saw, if you study with my eight-week program, you're going to learn these things. First off, in Rex Kwando, we use the buddy system. No more reading the Bible solo. You need somebody watching your back at all times. Second off, you're going to learn to discipline your image. You think I got where I am today because I dress like Peter Pan here? Take a look at what I'm wearing, people. Bible pants. Yeah, you have to be pretty righteous to rock these babies. Do you think anybody wants a roundhouse kick to the face while I'm wearing these bad boys? Forget about it. Last off, my students will learn how to walk on water, heal babies, raise the dead, and be extreme. Now, for only one $300 seat offering, you can sign up right now for my eight-week program here at Guts Church. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Warning, trying to save yourself by the law makes Moses your savior, not Jesus. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts, financial contributions, to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. You can partner with us by visiting our website, Fighting for the Faith. 
www.donate.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you're joining our crew, what you're doing is signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of fighting for the faith in pirate Christian radio. If you'd like to uh, specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the donate button or making your gift payable to fighting for the faith and then send that to post office box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, here is the next lecture on uh, Luther's commentary on Paul's epistle to the churches in Galatia. Here we go. Sort of preface before we begin. As I was getting out of the car, Gail saw me and said, could I ask something from last week? And I said, sure, go ahead. She said, when you refer to column A, well, I probably didn't say that in early in this class. I've used it in other classes here, and I've used it in public addresses to other than Lutherans. And by column A, I simply mean free justification by the blood of Christ and nothing else. And I'm contending that nothing from column B can ever sneak into column A or all is lost. And you know that from working your way even as far as we have here through Galatians. That's not innovative, and it's not Rosenblattianism. It's Luther. Uh, I'm just using a, um, uh, something that comes from the world of Excel or from uh, you know, people who spend their time doing financial stuff. Uh, and maybe it's not a very good analogy, but that's what I'm referring to. So I thought if Gail raised that question, maybe I ought to say that here before we begin. I just mean justification, where the complete, complete thing is Christ and his blood, simply grasped by faith, and everything else is column B. And it's got to be guarded like crazy that nothing sneaks over. Okay? All right. We're going to pick up, pick up at 17, which is after the collision between Peter and Paul. Okay? And we're going to see if, Lord willing, we can make it to the end. Uh, if not, we'll just finish it the next time. 17. But if, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we ourselves were found to be sinners, is Christ then an agent of sin? Certainly not or God forbid, or may it never be. That's the Greek translated various ways. That All of those are legit. The argument is this. If we're, if we're justified in Christ, then it's impossible for us to be justified through the law. Same point. Remember I said we're going to be covering the same point from every point on the compass? Same point again. Paul is saying justification is either by the law or through Christ. One of those has to be false. If we try to be justified in Christ, then discover that we need the law, that Christ really isn't enough, then Christ is nothing but a new lawgiver, even an agent of sin. Paul is accusing the, the false apostles and every self-righteous guy in the world of gravely perverting everything, changing law into grace and grace into law, changing Moses into Christ and Christ into Moses. Um, he uh, throws the papists in there and how they do this, how they do that. 
the work of Christ, says he, properly speaking, to embrace the one whom the law has made a sinner and pronounced guilty, and to absolve him from his sins. If he's a believer in the gospel, he said that's the work of Christ, to, to absolve sinners. Those who have grasped Christ by faith are to be absolved. When I'm in outside, outside Lutheran circles, I'll, when somebody's talking about the wonderfulness of their parish, I'll say, oh, really? They absolve you from sin every Sunday. Well, what does that mean? Hmm, okay. So, as Paul says in Romans 10, Christ is the end of the law, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The papists, he says, and the fanatics turn it all upside down. They call people back from baptism, back from faith in Christ, back from the promises of Christ, back to law and works. Again, changing grace into law and law into grace. Again, Luther, the cruciality of distinguishing between law and grace. Easy to do as far as the words are concerned, difficult in practice. Luther will admit that the papists say that the law and the gospel are distinct, but in practice they teach the opposite. Uh, Again, that's uh, faith formed in love. The Anabaptist equivalent, without your shouldering your cross, without your suffering, without your bloodshed, as you follow Christ, uh, you're probably not a Christian. Uh, They were not above saying when things were very, very peaceful, um, maybe we better stir up some persecution just to be sure we're still in. (laughs) Luther was not impressed with that. We do make the distinction, he says, and we note, we're not disputing here whether good works ought to be done. We're not disputing whether the law is good and holy, ought to be observed. The one question we're asking is justification, whether the law justifies. Once we've got that down, says Luther, we'll talk about how justification spills over into life, but not here. Another quote from him, if you're discussing how the sinner is justified, remove the life from the doctrine as far as heaven is from earth. Don't bring it up yet. You'll do nothing but destroy So he promises we will talk about that, but later. It's a powerful argument, he says. Uh, I've used it often to console myself. If we cannot look for justification in Christ, then we've got to look to it in the law. But this means it does not happen through grace. Uh, If it happens through the law, then what did Christ accomplish with his suffering? Either we're justified through Christ or we're made sinful and guilty through him, and he becomes an agent of sin. Scripture inculcates faith in Christ, magnificently proclaims him. Uh, Our opponents say, whoever believes in Jesus is damned because he has faith without works. That's a very gruff way of putting Rome's position. This perverts everything, makes Christ the condemner and Moses the savior, a true blasphemy. Eh? Uh, And he works through a little bit more about faith formed by love. Um, if you perform the law and works, then your faith justifies, because it has the works. Um, Luther, if faith justifies because of works, then works justify more than faith. 
Paul is arguing, if we who are justified in Christ are still sinners, who must be justified otherwise than through Christ, that is through the law, then Christ cannot justify us, but only accuse us and condemn us. It means Christ died in vain. It means that those who do the law without Christ are justified. Turks, Jews, Tartars, and he makes off a list. But Paul argues the opposite. It is wicked to assert that infused faith does not justify unless adorned by works. Why don't our opponents just call a spade a spade and simply reject faith in Christ completely? <coughs> I love that about Luther. Why don't you just, huh? Because it's what it amounts, what, what you're saying amounts to that anyway. Why don't you just have the guts to go the whole way? Just say clearly, works, not faith, justify sinners. Luther, for if faith justifies only with love, then Paul's argument is completely false. Paul clearly says that a man is not justified by works of the law, but alone by faith in Christ. The, phrase, the uh, question, is Christ then an agent of sin? Luther, Paul employs terms of reproach for the law of God. He's the only one of the apostles to use this kind of phrase. I hadn't thought of that till I read it in Luther. The other apostles don't talk like this. <clears throat> it's important for students of sacred scripture, says Luther, to understand this phrase of Paul. He compares 2 Corinthians 3, 7 uh, and speaks of Moses having a ministry of law. Paul calls a ministry of sin, wrath, death, and damnation. He's a lawgiver. He's a taskmaster. Uh, teaches that we should bear our cross and our suffering, imitate him and all the saints. And all this does is to terrify and trouble consciences, to shut them up under sin, uh, to make it impossible for us to be justified by works of law. Now, if it's impossible for the justified to justify themselves afterwards by works of law, how much more for the wicked? Uh, and he means those, by reading, he means unbelievers. Anyone who teaches righteousness by the law does not understand what he's saying. He's fooling himself and others. And here Luther includes all of Rome and all of the enthusiasts. Much less do they obey the law. Well, what is the proper use of the law? To make guilty those who are smug so that they may see they're in danger of sin, wrath, and death, so that they may be terrified and pushed to despairing, blanching, quaking at the rustling of a leaf, Leviticus 26. Great way to say it. Somebody who blanches and quakes at the rustling of a leaf. Hmm? The law requires perfect obedience to God, and it damns those who do not, do not yield this. But no one does and no one can. Therefore, the law does not justify, but it condemns. One who teaches the law is a minister of sin. <clears throat> the law does nothing but accuse consciences and, in fact, manifests sin. Knowledge of sin, not in the speculative sense, but where the wrath of God is really perceived, is a taste of death, a sensing of death. It terrifies hearts, drives them to despair, and kills them, Romans 7, 11. Scripture calls such a teacher of the law a taskmaster and a tyrant. It is impossible for those in such agonies to attain peace of conscience. Even those who have observed the monastic rule 
loved others, performed many good works, and suffered many evils. For the law always accuses and says, you haven't done enough yet. Terrors remain. They become worse and worse. Even teachers themselves, if not rescued by faith in Christ and his righteousness, are forced to the point of despair. He illustrates with a hermit who is dying. He takes it from the lives of the fathers. In spite of his spotless life, he knew that, quote, God judges differently than does man. And before he died, lost all his confidence in his good works and in his merits and embraced Christ instead. Luther said this is exactly how it goes uh, when you get to the point of death and you start looking to, I wonder, where the balance will fall when it's put in motion. My good works or my sins, Luther said, this is sheer insanity, and it will fall out from underneath you like a trap door at a gallows. It will never, never give confidence. So all the law can do is to render us naked and guilty. It gives no aid, no good counsel. Everything is lost. Neither, said Luther, can the lives and martyrdoms of all the saints help. It's all foreshadowed in the story of the giving of the law. Uh, Israel uh, there in Exodus, frightened, running away, exclaiming, we're going to die, we're going to die, let, the, let not the Lord speak, you speak to us, Moses. Luther, therefore, anyone who teaches that faith in Christ does not justify unless the law is observed makes Christ a minister of sin. He's a teacher of the law. Same thing as Moses. He's not the Savior. He is not a dispenser of grace. He's a cruel tyrant who demands the impossible of us. Uh, again, he takes a slap at the papists who say that Christ is basically a new lawgiver, and they do. And says Luther, if, the, if law is a ministry of sin, it's also a ministry of wrath and of death. Our conscience confirms it. You have not observed the commandments, therefore God is offended and is angry with you, will kill you, and he will damn you. Says Luther, logic is irrefutable. And he said it's why many commit suicide. But, he quotes Paul, certainly not. Paul is not the minister of sin. He's the dispenser of righteousness and eternal life. And Paul separates Christ from Moses as far as he can. Let Moses be a taskmaster of the law. Let him crucify sinners. Believers have another teacher in their conscience, not Moses, but Christ. Christ has abrogated the law, overcome and endured sin, wrath, and death. He commands us to look to him and believe. That's the time for the law to go away. Neither sin nor death can harm you and me anymore, for Christ is the Lord of all of that, law, sin, and death. He who believes in Christ is liberated from all of those things. So the proper task of Christ is to liberate from death and from sin. Through the law we're condemned and killed, but through Christ we're justified and made alive. The law terrifies us, drives us away from God, but Christ reconciles us to God, is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Luther, if sin is taken away, then wrath is taken away. If wrath is taken away, so are death and damnation. Now he says, we must learn to practice this distinction. Where Christ uh, is, there must be good conscience and joy. 
think Christmas, then Easter, but Christmas. Whoever or whatever the miserable and afflicted conscience seeks, it finds all of it in Christ. 18. But if I build up again those things which I tore down, then I prove myself a transgressor. That is, I have not preached, says Paul, in such a way that I would rebuild what has been destroyed. That's what the false apostles are teaching. What I have preached, <clears throat> the conscience is liable to the law of sin and death, but the gospel preaches forgiveness of sins through Christ. That's what I've preached to you. Believe in him, and you're free from the law's accusations forever. Reckoned righteous, and it'll hold true at the last judgment. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. On the basis of your sanctification, not at all. It's that you believed in Christ. Period. Thus, Paul says, by the preaching of the gospel, I've destroyed the law, lest it continue to rule sinners' consciences. Moses has to yield, to emigrate, when Christ, the new guest, comes into the house. Where Christ is, there the law, sin, wrath, and death have no place. Instead, there's nothing but grace, righteousness, joy, life, and filial confidence in the Father, who is placated, gracious toward us now, and we are reconciled to him. Am I now to expel Christ and the gospel to set up the law once more? Again, Paul, God forbid. Luther, let the papists destroy the kingdom of Christ, not by the use of Moses, but by human traditions and doctrines of demons. We, who by, by the grace of God accept the doctrine of justification, know that we are justified solely by faith in Christ. Do not confuse law and grace or faith and works. Separate them. Um, even the laity here, he's not talking just to pastors. To the degree that we can do it, the laity have to do this too, or all will get enveloped in law, and you'll wonder what happened. He said, you laity too have to learn to separate law from gospel. Um, we hear said to us, good works should be performed, or Christ should be imitated. Luther, fine. I, 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 I shall ask, anything else? Answer, yeah, in doing that, you'll be saved. I respond, no. I grant that everything should be done, but I'm not justified or saved through any of it. One point, again, <laughs> one point of the book. <laughs> <clears throat> exercises of devotion, afflictions of the body are not to be dragged into the question of justification. He said, that's what we monks did. Um, the counsel we gave to criminals about to be executed, we robbed them of the gospel of Christ just prior to their moment of death. We told them that their hope for forgiveness was in willingly enduring their execution for their crimes. Yikes. He said, that's what we did as monks to those who were just about to die. We added extreme perdition to somebody already most afflicted. And we showed them the way to hell through a false notion. This time, confidence in their death. Have confidence in your, your, in your hanging. Now, I'll, I'll digress for a second. I can't 
I can't not say this one. R.C. Sproul tells of using the Kennedy questions on his son when he was about 10. Junior, if you were to die tonight and to get to the gate of heaven and God were to ask you, why should I let you in? Would you know what to say? He said, his son said, absolutely, Dad. R.C. said, it was too quick. I knew something was wrong. He said, well, then what would you tell God when he asked you, why should I let you into my heaven? And his son said, because I'm dead. (laughs) Justification by death. (laughs) We ascribe more to human traditions than we did to the gospel of Christ as monks. Um... He cites some of the things that they read as their guides. What I thought, says Luther, when I was stuck in this mire. I confess that Christ had suffered, died for the redemption of the human race, but I still thought of Christ as judge, who had to be placated by my observance of my monastic vows. We always added, quote, Lord Jesus, I pray that the burdens in my order may be a recompense for my sins, the goodness of my fellow monks. Luther is holding this up as as an illustration of utter confusion and that the church was of no help whatever in getting him out of it. And then he thanks God, the Father of mercy, for calling him out of that kind of darkness into the light of the gospel. Therefore, we conclude with Paul that we're justified solely by faith in Christ, without the law and without works. After a man is justified, he'll not be idle but like a sound tree will bear good fruit. But he's not going to do that till later. He says it here. We too say that faith without works is worthless and useless. In what sense? Well, if there's nothing at all, uh, then probably the faith is pretty empty. But that isn't what Rome is saying. They're saying that the way of salvation is Christ plus your works of love to neighbor, and if those both are there mightily, then you might be saved. They'll never say surely, but you might. You have a good shot at it. Either we're justified by the law or Christ is an agent of sin, but the latter is impossible. Therefore, it must not be conceded on any score that we're justified by the law. 19, for I through the law died to the law that I I might live to God. This, says Luther, is amazing language, unheard of speech, uh, almost in the history of man. It's indignant language on Paul's part, spoken emphatically. Why do you din so much about the law to me? But if there must be a law, I have one of my own. It's the law, quote, of faith in Christ justifies which is hardly a law, but Paul is angry. Calls grace itself a law here because he's angry. Luther, this is most delicious language. (laughs) Paul is opposing the law to the law. Through the law, he died to the law. Similar examples, Romans 8.3, Psalm 68, he lists several. It's as if Paul is saying, says Luther, the law of Moses accuses and damns me, but against that law, I have another law of grace and of freedom freedom and of Christ. Paul here is the most heretical of heretics. Having died to the law, I lived to God. 
Yo! The false apostles, unless you live to the law, to God you are dead. Paul says we oppose, uh, Luther says we oppose by quoting Paul. Uh, reason and wisdom don't understand this. Teach, they teach the opposite. Paul, we cannot live to God unless we've died to the law. Or the law has no power over us if we're dead to it. And in Christ, we're dead to it. Now, again, this is all column A. It's all with regard to justification of sinners. The law has no more jurisdiction over us. I ask for help from lawyers, but we don't have time. No jurisdiction. Huh? When Christ rises from the dead, he's free from the grave. The grave remains, but he's free from it. Luther, this supports the declaration that the law does not justify. Only faith in Christ justifies. Quote, no one could have said anything more forceful against justification by the law than what Paul says. I've died to the law. Now, he's not speaking here again of just the ceremonial, but of the entire law, the whole schmoodle. For the Christian, the entire law has been abrogated, though the law remains. Let anyone who wants to be alive in the sight of God strive to be found outside the law. Hmm. Let him come out of the grave with Christ. Reason can't grasp this, is astonished, dazed. So we teach that when by faith in Christ we take hold of him, we enter a new kind of law which devours the other law that held us captive. We rise with Christ die to the grave, that is, to the law, forever. So again, he urges the importance of distinguishing between the righteousness of the law and that of grace. How the Christian conscience, being dead to the law, is of comfort to those of us with afflicted consciences. He admits it's a strange definition. We live to the law. To live to the law is to die to God and vice versa. He says, these are contrary to reason, but you must understand. Anyone who strives to live to the law, be justified by the law, is a sinner, and is dead, and is damned. The law cannot justify or save. It only accuses and kills us. To be justified by grace through faith for the sake of Christ, and without the law, and without works, is to be alive to God. Therefore, quote, if you want to live to God, you must die to the law. But if you live to the law, then you're dead to God. Luther's at his best doing this stuff. Again, Christian, properly defined, is a child of grace, of the forgiveness of sins. He has no law at all, but is above the law, above sin, above death, and above hell. Because all of it's given you and to me. In Christ, all of it. Just as Christ is free from the grave, as Peter was delivered from prison, so is the relation of the justified conscience to the law. When I feel remorse of conscience on account of sin, I look at the bronze serpent, Christ on the cross, John 3. There I see not just my sin, but another sin, the sin in the flesh of Christ, which he has taken from me to him taking away the sin of the world, and it damns and devours my sin. 
In my flesh I find a death that afflicts and kills me, but I also have a contrary death, which is the death of my death, crucifies and devours my death. On the shoulders of Christ, on the shoulders of Christ the crucified, lay all the evils of the human race, and they die in him. By his death he kills them. What's required of us? Nothing. Nothing. Just that faith takes hold of Christ. Believes that my sin and my death are damned and abolished in the sin and death of Christ. Thus, we have the surest kind of argument from which to draw the necessary conclusion that faith alone justifies. If we're dead to the law and it's dead to us, it has no business with us. How could it contribute to justification? It's necessary to say that we're pronounced righteous solely by grace or by faith in Christ without the law and without works. These press upon me, speak to me of doing works of love, but neither law nor love can deliver me from these tyrants. <clears throat> I must set here set law and love aside and instead direct attention to Christ dying on a cross, bearing my sin, bearing the law, bearing death, bearing the devil and hell in his body. Only Christ takes away the law. Only Christ takes away or kills my sin. Only Christ destroys my death in his body, and it's done with. And I have nothing to do but to hear it and to take hold of it. This, he says, is actually formed faith. And he says, then I will do good works, but he doesn't, he basically is deferring till later. Then everything that once used to oppress me, Christ has set aside, disarmed it made a public spectacle of it, triumphing over it in himself, so it cannot dominate me any longer. This is our theology. Uh, facing death, we use Paul's words, I through the law died to the law. There's a comfort for Christians. The culmination, the law now hears the law say, you shall not bind this man. You shall not hold him captive and you shall not make him guilty but I will hold you captive and tie your hands lest you hurt him who now lives to Christ and is dead to you. That's a quote. This knocks the teeth out of the law, blunts its sting and all its weapons, disables it. Um, then he has a little discussion of in what sense the law remains as we live in this world left kingdom and so forth, but not with regard to justification before God. Okay? Paul's words about the new law of grace personifies this other law as a thief, a robber, already condemned, having its hands and feet bound, shorn of all its power to tyrannize, makes it contemptible. Uh, Paul makes it contemptible to our consciences. The believer is given the courage even to insult the law with a certain holy pride. Huh? Paul is doing this. Luther, by the very fact that he permitted the law to accuse him, sin to damn him, death to devour him, Christ abrogated the law, damned sin, destroyed death, and justified and saved me. Now this, says Luther, is a particularly Pauline way of thinking and speaking, and it is very pleasing and very comforting. Uh, so he gets a lot out of through the law I died to the law. 
Um, he presents this very joyous duel, says Luther. The law battling against the law in order to become liberty to me. Sin battling against sin in order to become righteousness to me. Death battling against death that I might be a son of God. Paul's point, this sounds like heresy, it really isn't, it's Christianity. The, fa the false apostles say, live to the law or you're dead to God. And so all of that is delivered against them, the difference between the righteousness of the law and of uh, Christ alone. Um, 20, that I might live to God or be alive in the sight of God. There's no life unless you are without the law, dead to the law in your conscience. Still, as long as the body is alive, the flesh must be disciplined or vexed by laws. But the inner man, or the one who is justified, owes nothing to the law, is free from it, is holy in Christ. 20, I've been crucified with Christ. Paul is saying the law is the devourer of the law. Christ, the Lord of the law, has been crucified and has, has died to the law. Therefore, says Luther, I too am Lord of the law. I've been crucified, I've died with Christ, and in that I've died to the law. How? By the grace of God and through simple faith in Christ. The law has lost, lost all its jurisdiction over me as it lost it over Christ. Luther, Paul is not speaking of imitating the example of Christ. He's speaking about that crucifixion by which sin, the devil, and death are crucified in Christ rather than in me. Here Christ does everything alone. I make no contribution. All I contribute is sin. It's all done outside of me. But I, as a believer, am crucified with Christ through faith so that all these things are dead to me as well. 20, nevertheless, I live. Paul speaks of delivery from the law. We are going to live eternally. Luther notes the comfort of this verse. We live because of Christ's crucifixion and because of his power over death. Yet not I. This, Luther says, shows we take no claim of working our justification. It gives Christ all of the credit for it and notes our helplessness without him in his work. 21. Not as though I were not alive now, I am alive, and that by Christ's death and crucifixion, by which I also die. Since I'm liberated from the law, sin, and death by grace and by faith, I'm truly alive. Christ's crucifixion and death, by which I am crucified and die to the law, sin, death, so forth, is to me resurrection and life. The law still remains, rules in this world, but with regard to justification, it is crucified and it dies in Christ. And all believers in Christ freely get the benefits of what he carried in his body and his death. Yet not I, Luther, equals or is synonymous with not in my own person or substance, if I pay attention to or speak of the person, uh, it becomes a doer of works. Rather, Christ and my conscience must become as one body so that nothing remains in my sight but Christ and him crucified and risen. 
If Christ is put inside and I look only to myself, I'm done for. I lose sight of Christ. And once I've lost sight of Christ, there's no aid or counsel. Nothing follows but despair. So we must, in these conflicts of conscience, form the habit of leaving ourselves behind, as well as the law and all of our works, and instead turn our eyes to the bronze serpent, Christ nailed to the cross. And again, Luther says this is easy to do in words, but under pressure we pay hell to do it, to shift our gaze away from our innards and to Christ who's taken care of all of our shortcomings forever. Very difficult. We declare with confidence, he is our righteousness and he is our life. I care nothing about threats and terrors of the law or sin or death or wrath or the judgment of God. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. It sounds as if Paul were speaking of his own person, so he quickly corrects and says, yet not I. The person does live, but not in itself. He is the life I now live. What Christ does as he lives in me, he abolishes the law, damns sin, and kills death. Uh, All these things have to yield to Christ, who is peace and comfort and righteousness and life. I am liberated from the terror of the law and of sin. I'm in him. No evil can harm me. Meanwhile, my old man remains, and that's subject to the law. But with regard to justification, Christ and I are attached. Paul seeks to withdraw us completely from ourselves, from the law, from works, and to transplant us into faith in Christ, and to get us to look only at that, only at grace, and to separate it from the law and from works, which, says Luther, belong far, far away. Luther, Paul's unusual phraseology. It sounds unprecedented, and it was. It sounds insolent. I live, I do not live. I am dead, I am not dead. I'm a sinner, I'm not a sinner. Had he not written this way, no one, even among the saints, would have dared to use such phrases. But the phraseology is true in Christ. You don't find parallels to that in the other apostolic writings. Christ and his benefits are so cemented to me that he and I are as if one person. We are more intimately coupled than husband and wife. This completely removes the foolish dreams of faith formed by works. Thus far, Paul's first argument is this. Either Christ must be an agent of sin, or the law won't justify, or can't justify. Then Paul replies to objections that he anticipates. From the proud, he says, people will say they'll slander the preaching of free forgiveness of sins. Well, why then not do evil? The good may come. As soon as they hear we're justified, not by the law, they immediately slanderously infer, well, then let's just forget about the law. If grace is superabundant, where sin is abundant, then let's be abundant in sin. Luther says such men are arrogant and distort the scriptures. Then the objection from the weak. These are not malicious. Uh, But they're still offended when they hear that law and good works don't apply to justification. Luther, to these we must come to their aid. We must explain how work should be done 
and should not be done. Explain them as fruits of a righteousness that's free and which removes from us all demands and all condemnation and all tyranny. And then promise them the fruit will be produced and you won't be conscious of it. But relax. Christ is sufficient and Paul is correct. Uh, Our justification is utterly free and it's not with regard to the law in any, any way. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. I do live in the flesh, says Luther, but I don't consider that really living. It's sort of a mask, and under it lives Christ, who is truly my life. You see me talking and working and eating, but you don't see my life. I'm in the flesh, but not on the basis of the flesh or according to the flesh. Uh, It's in faith in Christ that I truly live. So this life is not the life of the flesh, although it's a life in the flesh. It's the life of Christ, Son of God, whom the Christian possesses by simple faith, who loved me and gave himself for me. Here we find the true meaning of justification described. Luther, with these words, Paul completely abrogates and removes the righteousness of the law and of works. And he says, I'll point this out more later. Boy, does he ever. Was not I who loved the Son and gave my life for him? Uh, Ask your evangelical friends about this one. That it isn't a matter of I loved God and gave my life for him, but just the opposite. The sophists pretend, says Luther, that man is able to love God and Christ above all things. And he clobbers it 40 ways from Friday. Um, They turn the words of Paul upside down. We have loved Christ and have given ourselves to him. Luther, they actually abolish the gospel, ridicule, deny, blaspheme, spit upon, and tread Christ underfoot. It's not by living by faith in the Son of God. It's by living in one's own righteousness and works. That is opposite of what Paul's writing. He quotes the familiar saying, Roman Catholic circles, God never requires of any man more than he really can do. Well, of course he does. Of course he does. Anybody who talks like that doesn't understand the law. He requires much more of us than we can ever do. Much more, by a factor. Uh, Luther insults this business. God will never deny his grace to those who do what they can by nature. Baloney. Baloney, or to quote Paul in Romans 2, you who possess the law, have you not read the law? Jewish, his Jewish friends. They claim that though corrupted, man's natural endowments are sound. Our intellect is pure after the fall. Our will is still good after the fall and sound. Uh... Luther, I concede that the natural endowments are somewhat sound, but when they draw the inference that a man is able to fulfill the law to love God, I deny the conclusion. Man's spiritual endowments are not sound. They're corrupt. There's nothing left but a depraved intellect and a will that's hostile and opposed to God's will. In what sense are the natural endowments sound? Well, um... The sophists here confused civil 
in ecclesiastical matters or things earthly with things heavenly. Um, if it's up to us to do some cleanup in the physical realm where we live in the flesh, okay. But that does not mean you can do the same thing and push it up into things heavenly. Uh, we are completely drowned in sins. Whatever's in our will is evil. Whatever's in our intellect is error. In divine matters, man has nothing but darkness, error, malice, and perversity of will and intellect. In other words, one of the places we collide with Rome is a fall that's really a fall. And theirs is a fall sort of. Huh? Um, you Think of the picture on the battlefield. Rome's position is you find somebody that's really, really seriously wounded. But if you use the old 19th century picture of a mirror put in front of the mouth to see if there's still breath, there's still breath. And what he's in need of, says Rome, is medicinal grace to help him to revive and grow and be renewed and so forth and so forth. In other words, justification is a process that we call sanctification. And the Lutheran position is you come and find what on the battlefield? A body. Hmm? Or as the Lutheran confessions put it, even the rocks are more virtuous than we are. At least they didn't rebel against their creator. So we're both dead and guilty according to the law, and the Lutherans are going to say, the gospel will raise that guy from the dead. What he'll bring with him as he's raised is his sin, and that'll be his contribution to his becoming a Christian, and Christ will do it all by taking him all on his own body and dying, um, and will be raised from the dead and given heaven for free. You say, what if I never get my act cleaned up? Welcome to the club. You get into heaven. Hmm? Why? Because of Christ, not because of you. Same for me. I'll never get my act cleaned up. Christ died for those who can't get their act cleaned up. And it's going to work. And the people who are, are focusing on cleaning up their act, unless Christ is included, are damned. This either is given for free or it isn't given at all. That's all of what Paul is arguing here. Huh? So, nothing of us and our natural abilities. Out with it. Paul, not we but Christ took the initiative. He loved me and gave himself for me. He didn't find a good will in me or a correct intellect in me, but he took pity on me anyway. He saw that I was ungodly, erring, turned away from God, drawing back, fighting against God, that I'd been captured and directed and steered by the devil. Then says Luther, by a mercy that preceded my reason, will, and intellect, he loved me anyway. And he loved me so much that he gave his son for me, that I might be delivered from law, sin, the devil, and death. The words, son of God, he loved me, he gave himself for me, are sheer thunder and heavenly fire against the righteousness of the law and the doctrine of works. If I could be rescued by such inestimable, only be rescued by such inestimable price, whence this boasting about reason, natural endowments, and doing what lies within me? It's like offering the wrathful God some straw and hoping that in exchange for the straw, 
uh, he'll exchange uh, grace and life, give me grace and life for it. There was so much evil in my nature that all of nature couldn't placate God. The Son of God had to be given for it, and he was. So, after hearing Paul's words about what the Son of God did for you, uh, bring these before God to placate him like straw. Uh, You should recognize what blasphemy that is. It's not anything you do ever, but it's what Christ did and only what Christ did. What about the words for me? Who's this for me? Luther, it is I, an accursed and damned sinner, who was so beloved by the Son of God he gave himself for me. If I were able to come to him by some kind of merit, even merit of congruity, what need would there be for him to give himself for me? The words who love me are filled with faith. Anyone who speaks, speaks this me in faith is the best of debaters against the law. Applying the phrase to myself that he was given into death and raised for me is the true power of faith. Paul sets this, grasping Christ in faith in opposition to all the law. It is a beautiful description of the priesthood and work of Christ. And this is as opposed, again, to the sophists and the false apostles turning Christ into a new lawgiver. The right defining of Christ, as Paul does here, is the highest art and the most difficult. We have to unlearn what we were taught about Christ being primarily a judge. And that we must replace with Christ as the justifier and the savior. The one who loved me and gave himself for me. Christ as the lover of those who are in anguish, sin, and death. Therefore, Luther says, read these words for me, me and for me with great emphasis and apply them to yourself. Appeal like this. I confess that I'm a sinner in Adam. I should, on the basis of Paul's words, confess also I've been declared righteous on account of Christ. Especially when I hear that he says, when I hear the words, he loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. This is the second argument of this epistle, says Luther. To want to be justified by works of law is to nullify the grace of God. It's bad enough that we're wicked transgressors against the commandments. Uh, But we add this sin of sins. We smugly reject the grace of God and the forgiveness of sins being freely offered to us through Christ. A horrible blasphemy, but says Luther, we commit it very easily. It's evident what it means to nullify the grace of God here. It's to want to be justified by the law. Do we sin by performing the law? No, but we nullify grace when we perform the law with the idea of being justified through it. Paul, for if justification were through the law, then Christ died to no purpose. Paul is not speaking here about ceremonial. Again, he's speaking about the entire law. Ask, is it true or not that Christ died? Then ask, did he die to no purpose? Luther, it's insane to not deny that he died and to deny there was any purpose to it. Christ died for us. Therefore, if he did not die to no purpose, then righteousness is not through the law. It is through the law, then Christ died in vain. Uh, If you acquire righteousness by obeying, then Christ died to no purpose. He's useless to you. 
Nullifying the grace of God is a very great and a very common sin. It's one that all self-righteous commit. The Pope says Luther has been the founder of all of these. I won't go into that. He's darkened and buried the gospel. Okay. We assert with Paul, either Christ died to no purpose, or the law does not justify. If Christ did not die to no purpose, therefore the law does not justify. If the law could justify, Christ acted foolishly when he gave himself. We conclude we're not justified by congruent merit, condign merit, our cross, our afflictions, our sufferings, but solely by faith in Christ. Quote, if my salvation was worth so much to Christ that he had to die for my sins, then my works and the righteousness of the law are vile. Um, And Luther notes when Paul refers to righteousness here, it's heavenly or getting us into heaven, not civic righteousness. Why is the law given? So that we cannot be justified by it. If it could, then Christ died to no purpose. So oppose the death of Christ to every single law. With Paul say, you know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Then you will be learned and righteous and holy, says Luther. With just that, Christ has carried all of that for me. You have no claim over me and you have no jurisdiction over me. Christ has already Christed me. Huh? You have no jurisdiction over me. Says Luther, once Christ is lost sight of, everything is pointless. All right, I've already held you over, but we made it within one verse of finishing two. When I'm back with you next time, we'll do that one verse and we'll tackle and see how far we can get into three. So I thank you for your attention. Hope it's of value to you. Mm-mm-mm-mm-mm. Great lecture. All right, so what'd you think? I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to uh, email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. Run in there, pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.